Hello and welcome to the Biz First Step Podcast. This is episode 24, season 3, episode something or another. All right. We'll figure it out. I'm your co-host, James Robert. And I'm Mick Posen. This is Peter Crysdale from Strategy Hack. Why do you love you? So Wait, who's he? Uh... Yeah, so we have. You guys invited me here. <laughs> <laughs> Who sent that email? <laughs> he just kind of showed up and just kind of walked in the room. I guess. <laughs> no, uh, in all seriousness. <laughs> um, so we're really actually excited to have you because awesome strategy hack. Excited to be here. Is uh, like right in our wheelhouse. The at. Uh, the intersection of business and development and business development <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of biz dev too yeah um so i guess can you give us like the the 30 the second uh backstory on how you came to be part of strategy hack and yeah absolutely um i was working as a coo of a software company for about a year very small startup and um we struggled really to um, understand and hone exactly who our customer was, who was going to pay money for the software. Um, and I looked around and realized that pretty much every other startup was having the same problem, right? They were creating a product that they were excited about that solved their problem, but they didn't necessarily understand who was going to pay money for it at the end of the day. Right. That, uh, that's a pretty big problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a big problem, yeah. Um, everybody hopes they're going to be the next Snapchat or Instagram and just figure out revenue later, right? What but... happened to being the next Facebook? <laughs> no, that was, that's so, like, five years ago. <laughs> it's too lofty of, a, of an ambition now. <laughs> yeah, although, I mean, Facebook is one of the few examples of a company that didn't have revenue for the longest time and has actually turned that around, right? Pretty fantastically. Yeah, yeah. Um, we haven't really seen any of these other big companies play in that space the interesting thing now is that facebook is buying most of the companies that don't have a revenue stream of some kind it's yeah. like they feel a little kinship to them we we know what it feels like we'll take i've heard it yeah. described as the new business model is scare the shit out of facebook <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean friggin 19 billion dollars right i mean yeah. elon yeah. musk is looking for to to raise money for SpaceX at a $10 billion valuation. WhatsApp was valued, was bought for more than SpaceX is valued. Yeah. All right, here, here's my thing about WhatsApp, is I think it's actually completed, completely distorted the investment market. So essentially, because you have such a high profile, such a high number acquisition, mm -hmm. basically every, every person subconsciously who's in part of the startup ecosystem has said, okay, other companies might be worth that much too. It's sort of, it's, I'm not going to say there's a bubble, but it's, it's certainly pushed us in the direction of a bubble because essentially every startup thinks that they're going to be valued mm -hmm. at a higher amount. Um, there are, I'm sure, a lot of investors who are thinking, all right, maybe I can get that number too, right? Yeah. Um, it's really kind of dangerous for our ecosystem. They raised the roof. Yeah. Yeah, they did in a, in uh, a way that is not realistic for 99.999% of Maybe the a few more nines. World. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they, they did a, a pretty strategic thing there by positioning themselves as being the people who overpaid for something so, and they overpaid so egregiously. Mm -hmm. But by overpaying that much, when they then approach another company, that company can assume automatically they're getting that they're worth, that Facebook might be overpaying for them. They're worth less, but Facebook is the company to go to who right. can, who can buy. It's like that guy at the at the bar who can buy 
who shows right away he is wealthy. Right. He shows up on the club. Or the now, does bar. that help or hurt Facebook? Yeah, I don't know if that helps because they have to keep it up. I mean, if they don't overbid for every company, someone like Google can swoop mm-hmm. in and... Right. Is that their... Well, yeah. No, no. Is, is that their flag in the ground saying, hey, Google... We're we're just willing to spend more money than you are on these companies. No, I mean, or they are trick they them. Actually, yeah, they trick them as in you, they they then approach a company and say, "We'll pay three billion dollars for you." The company think, "Like, we are we really worth three billion? If a company paid so much, paid nineteen billion for WhatsApp, and they're offering three billion for us, that means that because Facebook gave us this number, this is the overvalued number. Well. The per user number wasn't all that different than like what Microsoft true. paid for Skype, for instance, or you know other social acquisitions. Mm. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean that's a really good point. Um, it remains to be seen how Facebook is actually going to integrate any of those users into their platform as well. How they're actually you know going to quote unquote monetize all those people, right? Right. Um, which. <laughs> You know, Microsoft did a terrible job of doing it and selling <laughs> Skype, right? Um, or at least, like, just sort of treating it as this, like, other thing that's completely outside of their domain. Right. Um, like, Skype at least had some monetization strategy, though, too, right? Like, because you can pay to call a phone from a computer. Like, right, where yeah. is that in WhatsApp? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, WhatsApp makes money because the people pay $1 per year usage. Usually just $1 to buy the app, then it was $1 per year. Oh, really? I think I think that's how they made it. Yeah, All they, right. they I, did have a fee. Okay. But, I mean, it wasn't very much. Yeah. But you get, no, several hundred million people using it, then you make that much money, and then you're done. And then right. you have a recurrent subscription. Well, so let's it's put a, it this way. It's significantly lower than the dollar value Facebook puts on each of their users' heads. So they're going to be wanting to get that number higher. Yeah. There, there was... Um, I'm blanking where I read this, what the article was about. It was, oh, this was the, in the Atlantic, a discussion about, we'll link this in the show notes, an article about um, how, you know, we could have a better web. We don't, we don't have to have it only be ad supported. And how in order to get better ads, it means they have to have better return on investment than Facebook's ads, which means they probably also have to be creepier and more invasive. Is there something you're, <laughs> you I have mean, a solution to? No, it's not. Um, I think, I mean, the best we can do is look to app.net right now. We'll sleep as, on it. Maybe right? you get a solution tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I, well, I mean, the thing is, look, I mean, every startup, well, I'm not going to say every startup, but there is there is this dilemma between, you know, am I a sponsor and ad-supported or am I actually charging the end user mm-hmm. for the experience? Um, I think there are pros and cons on both sides. Um, it's a huge pro, obviously, to actually be able to get people to pay for the thing that you create directly, right? Um, I would much rather be in that business than in an ad-supported business. Because um, you're, if you're in an ad-supported business, you are essentially responsible to two completely different stakeholders with two completely different interests. You have the end user and you have the people actually paying you money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's a hard business to run. Um and I think you see the problems. I, so, um, man, taking, taking me back a few years, um, I was the CEO of a small digital magazine. Um, what was and it called? It was called The Green Economy. Um, and it was all about, I, we can still link to it. It's still active. Yeah, that's um, what the, that tap means. Gotcha. <laughs> um, the thing was really to package a lot of the sustainable business techniques and by that I mean like green 
sustainable as opposed to like sustainable business. Right. Um, package a lot of these big things that a lot of the Fortune 500 companies were working on in terms of sustainability and try to um, educate sort of small and medium-sized businesses on potentially using those same practices. We looked at being an ad-supported company. We were getting something around like 25,000 views a month. And um, we there was no way in the world we could have supported ourselves. You know, the great CPM, what is that's like, let's say you can get $10 CPM. That's only $250 a month. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's nothing. How do you run a business on $250 a month? (laughs) Right. And it's, and it's not, I mean like 25,000 uniques a month is nothing to sneeze at either. Right. No, Like you really, you have to get to scale and you have to get to scale fast in order to even like have, Which is really hard for a media publication. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, a lot of the ad-supported startups we see right now are supported more on the venture dollars they're bringing in than any actual revenue. Um, But there's no bubble. (laughs) Well, there's okay, whatever. (laughs) There, there are many smarter people than me who can decide whether there's a bubble or not. But there are some indicators. Yeah, for sure. Hang on to your hats, guys. But I mean, I mean, at an all-time high. <laughs> that's, I mean, but look, I mean, venture capital in general exists in large part on the hope of future revenue, mm-hmm. right? Um, and to just say that because venture capital is there supporting companies that don't have revenue yet, there's a bubble, is not a correct statement at all. Um, the question is, when has it actually jumped the shark? When has it? When has it gotten so crazy that people are putting money into things that will never ever make money? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I don't have any strong opinions about bubbles. <laughs> I like bubbles—the like air bubbles that come in the packaging. Oh yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> uh, well, is do any of the strategy hack companies pursue this strategy? I mean, I guess we could we could pontificate, but <laughs> in yeah. practice, where do you where do you stand on that? Um. That's a good question. So what we say with Strategy Hack is in order to participate in any of our events, startups have to have a product, they have to have customers, and they have to have data of some kind that they can actually give to the marketers that they sit down and work with for the day. When you say customers, what do you Um, uh, It could be paying customers. It could be just users of whatever software or service they are creating. And do Um, do you hold... um, somebody who has paying users to a higher value, so, so a higher esteem, of some sort. As in, like if they have, te- if they have a hundred visitors, right. users free right. versus fifty paid, right, or even twenty paid. I mean, so the, so there's a bit of a hidden thing here is that part of what we're doing is really looking for the companies, the startups we think are going to be most interesting for the marketers who sit down with them. Um, you know, so we're not going purely on whether we think this company is going to be huge or not, right? We want to see, like, have they, well, so we want to see customers because we want to see they've demonstrated that they're solving a problem, Mm -hmm. right? If nobody's willing to use whatever they've created, then they aren't really solving anybody's problem. Um, What we, but we also at the same time, you know, we aren't investing any money or taking any equity stake or anything like that. Um, So we exist not only to serve the needs of the startup, but also to make sure that the marketers are getting a high quality experience and actually come away feeling like they've really learned a lot by working with that startup. 
two, a two-prong question here. So first is about strategy hack, and second is about the marketers, the invention. Okay. So first, you mentioned that right now you guys, well, that you guys don't invest. Do you see yourself, and strategy hack is in itself a startup, as you like to say. Sure. Do you see it growing to, to the point where you guys can co-invest in these things after they come out if you, you kind of run a shorter-term accelerator program of some sort? Or, I mean, any format, any shape this can take. Yeah. Um, Maybe someday. Um, that would be pure speculation on my part right now. That's like five or six different decision points away from where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that would be really interesting, um, but we couldn't do it if it would compromise the actual, uh, uh, the actual value, core value of the event in any right. way, right? So if we were, if we were um, beginning to work more directly with. Um, directly with venture funds and bringing in the portfolios from different venture funds then there might be some um, there might be some conflict if we were also taking an equity stake right or who knows like there could hmm. be a lot of different things that would get in the way do you think you might guys you guys might get to the point where and again pure speculation where you become kind of an invite invitation only private well kind of private referral only service where VC firms come to you to take to help take care of their portfolios? We're already beginning to do some of that, nice. um, just on a small scale, yeah. Um, as well as working directly with agencies. So mm-hmm. we might, uh, we're, we might be doing a lot of events in the future where we mark where we match one specific digital agency mm-hmm. with one specific VC portfolio and gotcha. do a private event just for those parties. Mm-hmm. Um, I still always want to keep doing the public events. The whole idea of strategy hacks started with sort of this education for the masses kind of allow all these people to come together and participate. That I mean, there's some level of exclusivity in that we're taking applications and we only choose a very small amount of the applications we get. Um, Can you share but, roughly what portion you accept? Yeah, um, we get something around um, 40 or 50 startup applications per event, and obviously every event we're getting more and more applications. Uh Um, We choose about eight per event. Um, And then the marketers, we might get as many as 100 applications, and we choose 24. So in the actual structure of the event, every startup that gets accepted gets matched with three marketers. And then, do the marketers sort of stay with them? Do they move on with the startup, or do these mark like is it kind of like the same marketers that come back each time, and they just work for, with them for that one event? Um, so, anybody who has participated as a startup or marketer, we call them a strategy hack alum. Okay. Um, and we've had a significant number of alumni marketers come back and participate again. What about um, obviously not the startups? Um, we have we've had a few cases of startups wanting to come back and participate. Um, After a pivot or something like that? Yeah, actually. um, So at our very first event, we had a company called, uh, what was it? It was called TripCommon at the time. And it was a web portal that allowed you to see um, where your friends lived and decide whether you wanted to go fly to visit different Facebook friends based on where they're geolocated. Hmm. Um, They actually pivoted into a mobile app that's now become very successful called Hitlist. Is that in part by the uh, the learnings from Strategy Hack? Um, I would have to ask them that because this is now a year and a half ago, okay. um, and they launched the mobile app um, maybe eight months ago. So I don't know to what extent the input that they got at Strategy Hack affected that decision. I'm sure I, I 
I couldn't claim that it was only strategy hack that, sure, sure, that yeah, allowed them to pivot that way. Um, but they've now actually gotten a lot of success basically uh, allowing the end user to pick which cities they might want to travel to via this like um, sort of hot or not Tinder style mobile app. Hmm. And then sending them notifications when they're very low cost tickets to those cities, right? Cool. So yeah. if I if I tell it I want to go to Denver, then I might get an email five weeks from now saying, "Hey, if you go to Denver this weekend, it's going to be 170 bucks round trip." What was the name of that company? It's called uh, Hitlist. Hitlist used oh, to be TripCom, and okay. now it's Hitlist. Yeah. Um, good. You're you're doing something here uh, that I I found absolutely terrific. And as, as, you, as even the, within tech companies, we, as we move towards a more kind of polarized skill sets, yeah, or maybe and once say maybe disparate skill sets. You have the engineers that are so that are sectioned off, and you have the marketers are you know kind of in between. You have the growth hackers and the marketers, and you have the biz dev people and the salespeople, and you have this. You know, you might have the product manager depending on how big the company is that kind of you know walks that precarious road between all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if they're, I want to, say, especially I want to say, especially more so if they're non-technical, because then they can, they can speak to, they can speak the languages of all different sides. And one thing that you're doing here on on a scale is, you're allowing folks who are in a company that's presumably primarily technical mm-hmm. to get the guidance that they need and to speak the language they need of people that they might not be familiar with. Right. Well, so I, I mean, so I think there's a much larger trend in. Um, Historically, the product teams and the marketing teams in, you know, in average in your average corporation have been very distinct, mm-hmm. very separate, right? So, um, in the sort of waterfall waterfall style of development, you have the product team creating the product. When it's completely finished, they hand it off to the marketing team, and then right. it's their job to sell the thing, right? Which works um, better when you already know that there's a market. <laughs> yes, but I mean, the problem is when it takes you two years to develop a product, yeah. maybe there was a market two years ago, but what right. about now? Well, I mean, for the big companies like that yeah. they used to do waterfall, I mean, kind of everyone's getting away from it now, but yeah. back at those big companies, they sort of already had customers already buying the product and they spend a year or two building the next version. They kind right. of already knew who they were going to sell it to yeah. when you're a startup. So, I mean, part of, of part of the whole trend towards agile versus waterfall development is that all of a sudden you have opportunities to integrate the marketing and product departments in ways that you couldn't before, right? So mm-hmm. you can actually in, integrate consumer insights in real time into the products that you're building. Right. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, it's a mind-blowing idea for anybody who's used to having separate departments, right? But it can also be like a complete shitstorm if you aren't, if you don't have processes to do it appropriately, right? Um, <laughs> I think the, that it's an integration yeah. that's the trickiest because it involves everyone having to learn an additional skill set. And not only skill set, an additional language. Where people okay. who are more technical have to be able to speak the more intangible language, the right. bit more abstract language that marketers might speak. Well, that's, I mean, that's where our product manager can come in and really like regulate that whole conversation, mm-hmm. right? So that Joe Schmo programmer doesn't have to necessarily speak that language as long as the product manager above them can translate that language into something they understand. But, but when you're at these tiny mm-hmm. 
startups, you don't really, you don't, you can't set up that whole structure, right? The person who is coding has to be the person that can interpret the marketing language, has to be the person that can do all the finances, has to be the person that can interpret the legal documents. And all of a sudden, you know, this person who specializes in product and creating beautiful, you know, mobile apps or websites has to be very versatile and under, and like speak five different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, we just think that marketing is the most important and the first one that they should learn outside of product because if they can't actually understand consumer insights and how to build something that really resonates and, and modifies the behavior of people in their software, then what are they really doing? Yeah, then, then the plane never gets off the runway. Yeah, then you, then you build something that solves your problem and doesn't build, and you aren't building something that solves the problem of, you know, a million people, which is where you right. want to be if you want to be a startup. It seems yeah. like you're in the very fortunate and in unique position of being able to fundamentally change the DNA of companies and how startups view what the responsibility is. Because you tackle this product question so early on and with people who are maybe primarily technical so that as that company grows, the founders have had this sufficient education thanks to your guidance and, and the, the kind of the perspective that they had afterwards and then whatever road they went on because of it. Might not be, I mean, the device might not be the same thing that the exact bits that were followed from what happen at your event but the perspective that which they through which they perceive their company yeah. has now been changed and as they build it out as they grow it it's going to have a different it's inherently it's going to have a different dna yeah i i mean um thank you that's that's a very glowing review of, of <laughs> what we do at strategy hack i think um what we we're really enabling aha moments in mm-hmm. my mind. I think um, every startup comes in expecting to work on XYZ and then, you know, five minutes in, a marketer asks them a question that is just like such a radically different perspective from any any way they've ever thought before that it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> we don't have an answer to that question. Um, and, I mean, you know, they're... There are a certain number of startups who've come in unsure of whether they're a B2B or B2C company, right? Um, that is that a is fundamental a problem <laughs> that you need to address because if you try to tackle both of those at the same time, 100%, I guarantee you're going to fail. Do you, do you see um, marketers calling out programmers when they give when the program when they when well not necessarily programmers but but the founders whoever's at whoever the representative is do you see marketers calling them out on speaking to to jargony as in they, they ask a question and the answer is just it's not a real answer look i mean that or, goes both ways right i've yeah, i've seen programmers call marketers out on saying things that are too jargony you mm-hmm. know a developer says can you put that in english like i don't understand what engagement means can you define engagement sure you know um, and you know there there are buzzwords the in marketing, just like there are buzzwords in this sort of like Eric Reese lean startup methodology, mm-hmm. right? Now, are you also finding perhaps uh, this might be a, a longitudinal process, but when the initial conversation, yeah, both people have either already learned each other's jargon or they intentionally change the way they they speak with the other person because they know that the other person just doesn't know what term they're about to use. They become a bit more conscientious. Yeah, I mean, think of it like um, 
an American and a British person sort of having to find this common ground of language, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there are a ton of words that we as Americans use that are foreign to British people and vice versa. But, you know, say 85% of the language is the same. So if you can if you can understand each other using that 85%, you can still make yourselves very well understood. Right. Um, it's about just sort of like speaking plainly instead of using the buzzwords and things that you actually struggle to define when you're challenged to it do it. It's back to a few episodes ago when we <laughs> talked about speaking plainly. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. As a general topic. Well, those are technical. So t- earlier today, I, w- I took a meeting with somebody from one medical group, which um, excellent company. You guys should look into it. Um, yeah, yeah. They have uh, the offices across the entire city um, where you just get proper treatment. Right. You show up. There's just there's just no wait time. They're, they intentionally schedule so you don't get wait time. And it's especially things like medical care. It's these little pesky things, minor details that change an experience. So, something something simple as get rid of a clipboard because that feels a little alienating. That's mm. they've heard feedback that this is a great thing. So while I was waiting, I got there a couple of minutes early, and I don't know how I managed to do that on a, on a Tuesday morning with with the trains. I was impressed with myself. Yeah, uh, man, we're impressed. On your behalf. Thank you. Man plans the MTA laughs. <laughs> Someone behind me was, it was, I think it was an interview uh, mm. for a publication of some sort where the guy was talking in an extremely technical jargon, machine yeah. learning this, search that, and to a woman who, oh, that's very interesting, who, I'm not sure how, how proficient she was, and this is not a gender discussion, just strictly the role, she was only asking questions in a way that seemed as if she were, she were trying to write a story. But to be near Union Square, I was at Argo T University Place, be near Union Square and to hear such utter technical jargon <laughs> at 9.30 in the morning, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, am I, this is like, oh, here's a little Silicon Valley thing happening here. This is, we've made it. Like, they're here. <laughs> this, this is happening well, now. I mean, look, that jargon exists for a reason, too, right? Like, there is a subset of the population that is actually going to understand what that person is saying Mm -hmm. and understand it faster than if that person were just using, like, common everyday English. I mean, there's two, like, varieties of jargon. There's the kind, like, the weasel words that you use (laughs) to say less with more words, and then there's the kind that is more specific. Right. And, you know, obviously only one is useful. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm if I'm creating the next great, uh, like, computer networking or server company, or um, if I'm selling to an audience who speaks that jargon, then it actually benefits me in all of my marketing materials and everything that I do to use that jargon and to appeal to them because Absolutely, yeah. they might actually feel like, wow, this person gets me, this person gets my problems Quite because they can speak my language. language. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you do, I mean, you know, look, so well, much, so much about just compu- communicating with people is context, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding the context that you're in and how to communicate with different people in different ways. Can you give us some more specific examples? Sure. I mean, this is, this goes back to like um, my English class in high school, right? Where you are supposed to figure out who you're writing for, who's your audience in this essay, right? Or who's your audience in this fictional story? And the way that you write that story in high school English class depends on who's going to read it. If your English, if it's designed for your English teacher to read then you write it very differently than if you want it to be the next great American novel, right? Yeah. Are, so are, in, are you more on the marketer side or more on the hacker side? 
That's a tough question. Um, I come from the startup side. Um, I have an engineering degree. Um, I do actually, yeah. Um, but um, I, I feel like I kind of have my foot, like one foot in each world too. Um, I think I, I mean I think I stuck out a, <laughs> a little bit, stuck out like a sore thumb as an engineer who like actually had somewhat decent communication skills. Um, which meant that I wasn't actually, you know, I wasn't good at just sort of like sitting heads down and like doing drawings and, you know, programming all day. But um, it's suited me pretty well to run Strategy Hack. How, how do you feel about switching between those roles? For me, context switching is the hardest thing to do. Um, that's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, as with, as with anything, whether it's, programming or writing a sales document you need a little bit of a ramp you need a little time to like get yourself in that headspace right mm -hmm. um but i find it interesting like it's so much it's so much more fun to me to like be working on all these different tasks to be speaking the legal language and then speaking the finance language and then speaking the product language than to um then to just be concentrating on one thing all day do you try and schedule your day so that you can kind of group similar things together or you just kind of take it as it comes? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would love to be actually grouping things together and, and saying that I'm always very cognizant of where my energy is focused and, and how I'm spending my time. But the reality is that, you know, running such a small company, there are like 15 different things that come up every hour that like mm. take me out of that. Right. Um, I've actually been looking um, at, I don't know, have you guys heard of Yesterbox? No. Um, so we'll this is Yesterbox.com. Um, it's something created by Tony Shea um, from Zappos. And the whole idea is that you only ever answer emails that you received yesterday. Um, and that your one of your productivity goals today is to answer every email you received yesterday. So you still answer every single email that you got, but, but not on an interruption basis. Exactly. So you basically, if you can answer every email that you got yesterday by 10 a.m., then you have the rest of your day to be productive on what's actually important that day. Yeah. That's um, hard when you're running a company, though. Yeah. I, I, I should <laughs> say this is not something I've actually tried yet, um, but it's a, it's a curious concept. It's one of many sort of productivity hacks to yeah. really make sure that you're focusing time on what's important instead of what's just urgent. Yeah, that's like the Paul Graham essay, the sort of manager schedule where your whole day is interrupt driven versus like the creative <laughs> schedule where the right. whole point is to get into that like flow state. Right. I mean, yeah, and like running running such a small company, you really have to find time for both. Right. Um, because if you don't actually spend the time to to question yourself and say, are we really still moving in the right direction? Are we really focusing on the things that are going to get us to our end goals? Um, then you're going to end up, you know, doing a different thing every five minutes and just like going crazy. Earlier yeah. uh, yesterday, I got, <laughs> I was trying to do some deep thinking research. I was researching a topic that I wanted to explore, how, figure out how, how I want to explore um, getting out either through the men's series or just. I mean, it was personal satisfaction mixed with what I'm already working on for work. Uh, and it was one interruption after the other. I just picked up my laptop, told my intern who's departing tomorrow. I'm so sad. If you know, oh, yeah. if you know of anybody who's looking for an internship, I'm hired. 
hearing. <laughs> An internship for um, the Hive at Fifty Five and Launch LM. It'll be fun. It's your title. Will be called. It will be Tech Diplomat. Get in touch if you guys want. That sounds intriguing. And it's paid. Like I, I get to pay you. you Do I get a diplomat me. license plate? Yes. Nice. <laughs> in, in, in your lift, which I'll give you a free discount code for your first ride. <laughs> oh yeah, Brooklyn is a discount code for lift. So is Mick Forty Three. Now I just feel left out. I don't have any lift discount codes. Oh, to well, give I saw away. mine on the subway, so don't feel too bad. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you mine, and you get yours. You'll probably be Peter Forty Three. Great. Uh, so and then I just like picked up my laptop, walked off to the side room, and I just hunkered down for about an hour and a half, and it was bliss. <laughs> no, no phone, no door, just I can focus. Look, but it, it depends on what you're trying to achieve too, because if you're if you're deeply embedded in the sales process for your company, right. then you like every time you get a new email from a potential client, that's amazing, mm-hmm. right? And when you're getting you know sixty emails every minute or 60 emails an hour, you know, if you're getting like a crazy amount of emails, that is actually exciting. It's energizing. It's, it's what you're hoping for. Yeah. Um, but if you're, if you're trying to like solve a very hard engineering problem, or if you are like trying to bang out this contract that needs to get sent to a client tonight or, you know, the different times for different things. Yeah. I mean, I think the main, the main point there is that in one case, email is the thing that you're focusing on, right? Yes, exactly. And in the other, you're trying to do something else and you keep getting interrupted. Yeah. It's such a scary thought that our work has now been whittled down to just staring at the computer. I mean, we're, we're usually using it somehow. It's what I've always hoped and dreamed for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that is the sort of like vision of the future, right? That eventually we don't even have to move anymore. <laughs> and so, the machines are just going to do everything for no. us. Like, we're halfway there, right? We just sit stationary all day and allow the machines to do the work that you used to have to, like, do manually. This is why I made it a rule to have at least one-third of my meetings be walking meetings. Yeah. Uh, walking while meeting or walking to the meeting? Walking while meeting. And I always I always try to get out to, especially if they're local meetings, I always try to go over to them because, A, Human interaction. Hey, this is nice. I've now made a third of my meetings be with Joaquin's. Oh, Joaquin people Roca. named Joaquin. Oh, oh. <laughs> so I, I did want to ask about that. Um, so one of your companies, one of the companies that recently participated in Strategy Hack is Joaquin Roca's The Scaffold. The Scaffold. The Scaffold. dot com. Yeah, uh, and he, I know he worked very closely with Sumall, and I'm a big fan of that company. Yep, and they. They're moving down. Well, I think they just moved, or they're in the process of moving down to to Lower Manhattan. They won't okay. take the helm competition, so they won a massive right. amount of real uh, money for real estate. We'll link that in the show notes if they have a third one. Come on, NYCDC. <laughs> Come on, DeBlasio. <laughs> no pressure. And he, they have an extraordinarily active culture uh, in terms of very, very responsible. Everyone's incredibly empowered. Mm. I had, my roommate was interviewing with them. Well, my former roommate okay. was interviewing with them. Yep. And they, he met with so many people. Another yep. friend, she, she, they're looking for a project manager. This was back in December, looking for a project manager. Um, so, so yeah, this is all, um, I don't know anybody at Sumall directly, really, but um, I know a lot of stuff just through press that they've done and through mm-hmm. um, sort of third-party conversations. Um, they do some really interesting stuff, including um, all of the salaries for everyone at the company is open information for every other person. 
So mm. every employee knows how much the CEO is making, and they know how much the intern's making, like Which to is, the dollar. And this is similar to I think what, what Buffer did. Okay. But on a but Joaquin also does he also trains in a way of um, leadership styles, employment yeah. styles, management styles, communication styles. Yeah, his whole thing is helping. Um, or before he started the scaffold, he was working as a consultant to help growing startups scale mm -hmm. and understand the changes they'd be going through as they hired more and more people. Because mm -hmm. um, when you go from, a, a, talk to a company uh, last week that went from 20 employees to 200 employees in two years. Like, how do you how do, you do that and still main, maintain the culture? I mean, the answer is you don't. The culture's going to change. But how do you sort of continue to make it a place that people really want to work and, and infuse all these different values and other things that it was just sort of, you know, obvious to everybody before that. Um, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And Joaquin was doing a great job of helping companies walk through that. Now, who are the other Joaquins you've been speaking to? <laughs> uh, Phoenix, mostly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every Friday, we just hang out. We bowl. I, I figure you guys just call each other before you go to bed. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> occasionally, if we haven't talked in a while. <laughs> but seriously, though? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you guys do bowl. Like, I... <laughs> I wish. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix. I wonder... He's a great actor. In case any of our listeners don't know who Joaquin Phoenix is, <laughs> you can scroll up the show notes and click the link. <laughs> Have you seen She... I have. Is it her? Her. Uh, her. Her. I know what you. Damn. I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, that feminine pronoun. Interesting movie. I think. I mean, you know, one of the most interesting things about it is it predicts the sort of exponential growth of artificial intelligence, right? Um, that, I mean, you know, it starts with this sort of like Siri equivalent, like maybe what Siri is going to be ten years from now. Um, and then moves forward off of that. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I can speculate for a long time about what the world is going to look like 25 years from now. But um, strikes me as unlikely to go down like the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, who knows? Like, like the one, idea like of the machines Apple. feeling emotions. Oh well, yeah. I was going to say the Apple equivalent company from the movie. Yeah, they would probably have some thoughts on their their AIs getting out. Out, off the rails yeah yeah they're very, they're very yeah. possessive but it's a good thing that they they had that handwritten postcard company because i guess we'd still have hipsters in the future <laughs> of course um and mustaches obviously um, um, what you guys can see is that peter is rocking a an incredible mustache it's the first time i've ever seen peter with a mustache all right and you guys are missing out it is not the last well it's your twitter photo you have a mustache right um maybe Maybe I've lost. I've a lot of different photos in different places. I was unsurprised by your down. appearance. So I'm pretty <laughs> sure you had the mustache in whatever photo I saw. All right. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder. Getting back to the movie example, um, I wonder if there'll ever be a point where humans can no longer like pull the plug. Basically, you know, like what you're saying is that Apple will never let it get to a point where you can pull the plug. Right. Yeah. Or, or you can't pull the plug on whatever technology they've created. Like, is there a point where we're just so deeply um, intertwined with technology that, I mean, like... One thing that's interesting in the movie yeah. is they don't have physical manifestations. They're just a voice that comes out of, like, a phone-type thing, right? right? So wherever 
the computers are, the data center, whatever, yeah, you would think that they would have no control over the power that goes to it. I mean, like somebody can just turn off the generator. Right. At what point will a an some some bit of artificial intelligence convince someone to release it? So that to, the point, to, to get to the point that it can't pull the plug, where it can, hmm. if it gets so intelligent that it's able to convince a lowly human engineer to add in however many additional lines of code it needs to get it to the point where it can, I would suspect they even with an IQ of effectively five hundred, a thousand, just be one order of magnitude smarter than people, and you wouldn't have too much trouble. I mean, what we're talking about, uh, not to. Um, reference the matrix because it's obviously over reference but we're talking about a matrix level movie where machines can self-replicate right yeah um where a a machine that realizes that it's failing can produce a new younger machine that is not failing i just realized joaquin is actually neo He's going to help us figure out. Uh, Joaquin um, Broca is Neo. He's okay. going to help us figure out what to do with machines as they scale from <laughs> 2 to 200. Somebody's going to have to serve the robots. It's true. Ah, so that's what's going to happen <laughs> once we all don't have jobs. <laughs> well, I mean, once the robots are doing everything, then if the robots we won't smart, need jobs anymore. They'll make us think that we want to do it. <laughs> and they wouldn't want their kind to be doing pithy labor. Pitiful, but they want. We should be doing that because we're the subservient ones. Except for very much like how we have humans do things that robots can't do, it would seem horribly inefficient to have people do this the work. They'll look at people and be like, "God, they're terrible at this." Well, uh, unless <laughs> we they... ought to replace them with machines. <laughs> <laughs> they came to the same conclusion we did, but uh, unless they have, they maintain them, us, and they placate us. That's, That's what what we I mean. can keep. We can. They can keep us busy because if they again they get to the point where they're so smart that they realize that by those growing pains of when we all get jobless because of we all become jobless because of them they need someone they need to keep the peace somehow and keep us from getting a little too rowdy someone's gonna have to rewrite the most dangerous game yes. do you think anybody's still listening at this point or have we lost everyone oh yeah we usually go twice <laughs> as long as this at least <laughs> um also there's no dead air because we remove that oh, okay so you, you can just sit in silence for 10 or 15 minutes if you feel you need to oh all right. <laughs> we, we give breathing breaks to, to recharge and respire. <laughs> We're on Bre- the same page. <laughs> breathe with us, listener. Breathe. Awesome. What have you found to be some of the more um, compelling stories that have come out of Strategy Hack? Some of the things that are a bit more that you, didn't, that you just didn't expect anyone to come up with. Sure. I think... Um, what startups get out of it is entirely dependent on where they are when they're coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, I mentioned we have companies that don't know if they're B2B or B2C. That's extreme. Um, we had a company called Get Taxi, which is a competitor to Uber. Um, they're now, yeah, they're now funded somewhere around $65 million, and they're planning to raise another $125 million. Um, yeah. So big time stuff. Um, they are based in Israel. They're basic. They're like the Lyft or the Uber of Israel, and they're trying to expand internationally. I heard they're relatively um, big in, in England too. Yeah. So um, they were going for London, New York, and uh, Moscow, I think, mm-hmm. as their first mm-hmm. expansion cities outside of Israel. Um, they participated in Strategy Hack specifically 
to uh, rebrand themselves for the New York market. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is in Israel, they're very short, sort of like a shorts and sandals kind of brand, very laid back. Um, and they realized to compete with Uber, they need to do things very differently to mm-hmm. get a, a lot of the corporate market here in New York, which is where the real money is in the city um, for them. Um, so they worked with their three marketers specifically uh, to do a number of things, but they came up with a, a one-day campaign around a hashtag, which was get anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so G-E-T-T anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea was that for one day, you could get all sorts of different things in the back of a cap. Um, so they did everything from... Um, manicures in the back of a cab to someone actually got a tattoo. Like there's a picture. If you search that hashtag on Twitter, someone posted a picture of them getting a tattoo in the back of a taxi while it was moving. While it was moving very slowly. <laughs> <I think. laughs> um, so they actually executed this campaign uh, like six weeks later on April fool's day. Mm-hmm. They participated in February and then did this on April 1st. Um, they, actually bought wrappers for all the AM New York newspapers. Like, you know, you can buy the, um, uh, like one page wrapper that goes around the entire free newspaper, um, with all these different like hashtags based on what sort of the original services they were offering, like the tattoo thing. You could have bodyguards in the back. You could have an oxygen bar in the back of the taxi. Um, but then if you did it early enough, you could also tweet at them and, and sort of customize your get anything ride um it was just like a quirky really unique thing that actually got them a lot of attention okay then how did it feel to have somebody so big joint strategy because you mentioned some of the companies tend to be a little bit small shop this is a well-funded company yeah that's yeah. A yeah serious marketing effort <laughs> yeah um they were a little smaller when they actually participated this was like six months ago mm-hmm. um but it was it was interesting um they were uh they are definitely the biggest of the startups that have participated. They represent sort of the high end of the spectrum for us. Um, but I believe at the time they only had three employees in New York. Oh. Um, some, it was certainly less than 10, um, something small. Um, and so it really was like they, and because they were completely rebranding what they were doing and launching it in a completely unknown market, um, they were facing a lot of the same problems that a lot of the other startups face granted with a little bit more money behind them. Mm-hmm. So did it come across as just that these three people maybe were a little bit lost? No, no, definitely not. But, um, I mean, you know, the nature of a startup, even a, you know, even a eight figure funded startup is you just have to figure a lot of shit out as you go. Right. right? And so when someone, when someone sends you to New York City from Israel or or hires you from Israel in New York to all of a sudden launch a completely new brand against an existing competitor, um, that's a you know, that's a tough proposition. Yeah. Especially a competitor like Uber and and as soon as Get Taxi launched in New York, Uber actually sent a, a big slew of their employees out to book and then cancel get taxi rides allegedly uh yes although they never denied it right um, same they, they, <laughs> same they, they basically said uh yeah that sounds like something we do 
Yeah. And then, and then they did the same thing with Lyft. I assume Um, Uber has some kind of safeguard so people can't do it back to them. No, I mean, so they accuse Lyft of doing the same thing to them. Okay. Uh, But one one company is known for being a little ruthless. One company is not being known for being ruthless. I I did take a Lyft recently, and I was disappointed. They took down the big mustaches, the little dinky ones. Yeah. They, they handed me a little, like, six-inch, like, fuzzy mustache when I got in. <laughs> it's kind of fun. When I went, when I used to eat at Subway, I'm glad those days are gone. I never got a six-inch. It was always a foot long. <laughs> and ordering a 12-inch Italian is not a... I'll tell you, when I was in high school, I used to get two foot-long subs from Subway. Like, wow. every time I went, I'd get, like, two foot-long meatball subs. That's incredible. And yeah. it still costs, and it costs you what roughly what Chipotle costs you now. <laughs> yeah. Ten bucks? Yeah. Yeah. It was a $5 foot long. Yeah. Wow. All right. So we don't have tons of time left. And I <laughs> wanted to get into uh, a little bit more tactical. Great. Because I think a lot of our listeners are kind of in the, the earlier stages. So what, what kind of advice can you give someone that's just starting out and they – well, let's do developers first. Sure. Um, to, in order to make sure that they don't make any of the like – biggest most egregious mistakes that are gonna like really just shoot their foot off (laughs) sure i mean yeah so um in order to answer that question i'm gonna back it up out of tactics and start with strategy because i think that's where any good company has to start Mm -hmm. right um you can't just go in and say we're going to like you know uh, i mean you know if you take the analogy which is most appropriate the sort of military analogy you can't just say we're gonna go in and we're gonna like try a bunch of different tactics and yeah. see as long as which of the them succeed right, and fail, right? <laughs> like you have to start with a strategy. You have to test a strategy to see if that strategy will succeed or fail. Sure. Um, and then within a strategy, you have different specific tactics to test the strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to differentiate the two and not just go in and, and start an email newsletter and, and spam every single person that has opted into your content right. without having a strategy behind it of we're going to send it once a week or once a month and how you're going to actually communicate why people would want to opt into it in the first place. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly one big thing. Just don't go out and just spam people who've opted into your stuff. Um, you know, when people opt in, it doesn't – they aren't just – new leads for you, they're a little bit more than that. They're saying, um, I actually like what you're doing and I want to find out more about it. Um, so it's not just it's not just another user. It's someone that you can actually engage at the point where they opted into your content, right? So if they follow you on Twitter, that means they want to follow your tweets. It doesn't necessarily mean that they want an email saying, apply now, apply now. Right. Um, or it means they want you to follow them. Yes. Yeah. More <laughs> likely, actually. Um, but yeah, I think. Let's talk about Twitter for a second. Okay. Because sure. I, I think Twitter is actually not a great marketing channel for a lot of businesses. Um, it's a great way to distribute content if you're producing content. And, um, and if the people you want to distribute it to are interested in following you on Twitter. Yeah. It, it doesn't really definitely. work for B2B, I think, most yeah. of the time. Um, it's, it can be, um, can be a good engagement tool. Look, like I, I need to back this up again because, uh, at the center of everything is really understanding who your customer is in the first place. Right. Right. Like if you are, if you're even considering building a product, 
one of the first things you need to do is not just say, well, we think men between 25 and 45 years old would be interested in this. Or, um, you know, we think that anybody that works at a tech company would be interested in this. But you need to get very specific in saying these are the types of people that we think within that larger segment we think uh, would be very interested. And then test each of those like little subsets of who you think your customer like is. for example a type of person would be something like um i would say um so we can do it for strategy hack right okay. um so we target marketers that are usually between um five and ten years of experience they work for an agency um they have a fair amount of disposable income because they are relatively content at their job and they do a good job there, but they're looking for something that's a little more creative. Um, they're looking for, you know, the people who are used to working on major clients like Coca-Cola and GM and Samsung who want to find out more about the startup ecosystem, want to actually sit down with startups. Um, and so right there, that definition that I just gave says, well, Maybe there are specific meetups we should be going to. Yeah. Um, what are the events where people like self-select to um, find out more about startup content from a marketing perspective? Um, then we need to be at those events, right? Um, the definition that I gave doesn't necessarily imply that we need to be engaging people on Twitter or Facebook, right? right? Um, and in fact, events are a very good way for us to find people. Yeah, I I have actually had that experience too. Yeah, not anymore. I'm not working on that anymore. But <laughs> at the time, events were a really great way to find people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What actually the biggest way that we find people is through word of mouth, and I know that's like a very nebulous thing, but um, we use something called the Net Promoter Score. So we survey people after they've participated in an event, and we ask them, "How likely are you to share your experience with a friend?" Not just how much did you enjoy it, but how much are you likely to actually tell somebody else about it? Um, and I'm happy to say that we are averaging somewhere around a 9 out of 10, mm -hmm. um, meaning that people are very likely to actually tell somebody about it. And that's how we've gotten a lot of our applications. Right. I would expect, and I have no data to back this up, <laughs> yeah. that in order for that kind of thing to work, you need to have a, a good enough idea of who you're targeting that when someone hears the description, they think of a person. They're like, oh, mm. I know someone that fits that exactly that description. Sure. And that you kind of need that level of targeting in order for the word of mouth to really work. Because someone yeah. has to sort of go, oh, I know exactly who should be here. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, a huge part of it is not wasting your own time too, right? Like, yeah. if you... You know, there's a there's a term in marketing called spray and pray, where it's just like you put everything you put everything out to the wind and hope that people are going to come back to you. Right. It's a terrible terrible way to go about it, and and can waste a lot of money if you do that at a big corporation. You know, and that's yep. now we have so many different ways to actually measure the success of marketing campaigns. But it used to be you just put, you know millions of dollars into TV ads and hope that people actually buy your product without and then that's that's why Nielsen was such a big thing when Nielsen yeah. ratings came out it was like wow you can tell me how many people saw my commercial 
or you, how many people you think saw my commercial, like that's huge. And there's the the infamous, and at this point it's maybe a hackneyed phrase uh, to do with marketing. Um, half of money that's wasted on, on advertising is wasted. Yes. You just don't know which half. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, let's say that you're, you're managing a marketing, and again, this is not startup, but like, let's say you're managing a marketing spend of $5 million. Mm-hmm. You know, or I mean, this is sort of old world stuff now that you can really measure most of it, but you know that you're wasting a lot of it. You just don't know what's going to waste. Yeah. yeah and if you cut the wrong thing, then you're probably going to get fired. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, corporations have all sorts of issues where you have this um, sort of antiquated thing where, oh, well, we do this for this reason and we do that for that reason and, and we have this relationship with an agency who does all of our TV ads, so right. we'd rather just maintain that relationship than try new things. Yeah. And that's uh, when you know it's time to leave. Maybe. Hi. Maybe. So, maybe we can put some numbers on this, maybe we can't, but okay. let's try. Um, if So you're starting a venture and you you want to do some marketing yeah and so you, you whatever you do your first anything i don't know pick anything social media like facebook you make a page you try and get some people to sign so up you, you spend your first hundred dollars on adwords ah perfect great how how do you make a decision about the whether you were wrong about one of your assumptions or if your ads were bad or like hmm. how do you decide if the difference between I just don't know how to use AdWords versus this business idea is not a good one? That's a good question. Um, It's hard to answer that without having sort of a a specific hypothetical business model. Um, I'm going to take one of those 15 second pauses. Go ahead. Um, We can work from like an example, say, uh, so in the app world, yeah. there's been a lot of noise around this guy, Jared Sinclair, who okay. made an RSS reader for iOS. Okay. And he was relatively unhappy with his app store sales, his big launch. I mean, hmm. he made, he didn't make no money. He made, I think, like he said, thirty or $40,000 on the hmm. launch, but he spent six months building it. So he was pretty disappointed because okay. he doesn't want to live on fifty or $60,000 a year in okay. a city. Right. Um, and uh, so say before he had built this app, he wanted to do some research to validate that there were actually people in, right. the, in this market. And I mean, there's some evidence, right? There's other R- iOS, uh, what do you call it? RSS readers on iOS. Right. But obviously, he, you can't just roll up to your competitors and say like, so would you mind telling me how much you sell and who you're right. marketing to? Because they're not going to tell you. <laughs> I mean, for me, there are two things. There's um, whether you're actually solving a problem for people. Um, which is different from whether you're communicating effectively with people, right? You could have the perfect solution to somebody's problem, but if you aren't explaining it to them in the right way or you aren't um, doing enough to capture their attention to begin with, right. then um, you aren't going to get a good sense of whether there's a real market for the product. So in his case, he was covered on a pretty large number of like iOS like. Mm-hmm app reviewing sites and tech sites and it was very um it was critically acclaimed i mean okay in general the reviewer said it's good go check it out um but i don't know still it didn't quite work out for him i so i suspect that yeah. the reason it didn't work out for him is because there aren't enough he didn't either didn't charge enough money or like whatever the the supply demand curve for rss readers on ios doesn't 
doesn't bring you to a, a high enough sales volume to really make a career. Yeah. Yeah. Like a long-term whatever business. I, d- I mean, career. maybe, maybe I'm old, but someone still has to explain to me why RSS isn't, isn't as popular as it used to be. Um, I don't, I don't know. I read all my news on RSS pretty much. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I'm still puzzled as to why Google reader doesn't exist anymore, but I just use a clone of Google reader. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it all depends on your goals. You know, I can imagine uh, a, an iOS developer for which that would be an absolute success. Sure. Right? I, I mean, I'm um, thinking, you know, yeah. maybe if he didn't live in a city. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, look, it depends on whether you've taken investment or not, too, right? Like, um, that's true. Your, your company is going to have goals independent of any individual. Um, and so you're you're gonna know we have to hit a certain we have to tap into a market of a certain size in order to satisfy investors or in order to satisfy our own growth goals. Right. Um, and so there I can get, be a point. I mean, what are some I mean, things of, you can do to yeah. sort of make sure you don't walk down that path by accident? What Test you, and fail as fast as possible. Right. Like once you set that strategy. You have to figure out as fast as you can whether that strategy is going to work or not. Um, and you can use a ton of different tactics to figure it out. But um, if you, uh, after two months, you know, if you've tried, let, let's just say that um, your strategy is to get as much press for your app as possible, right? Like in this example, yeah. um, it seems like that was a definition of success for that strategy. Um, well, I think the definition of success is making a lot of money, but press was. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, all right. So the strategy is get press, right? And yep. you go out and you do as much press junkets and, and talk to as many reporters as you can. Yep. And you get results that are less than satisfactory like this. Well, you can do, I mean, hopefully you want to do that as fast as you possibly can. Um, but you can then try a different strategy, right? Like right, yeah. maybe the thing for him to do was to actually go to like, I don't know, like RSS con or whatever, like some, yeah. you know, some imaginary 50,000 person conference um, and oh, yeah. sponsor it or speak at it. And maybe that's where he was really going to get everybody, not just on a big press blitz, which would be a completely different strategy. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, Look, you gotta. You can take a lot of the sort of product uh, design centered ideas and apply them to the marketing context, right? Like, fail fast, try something. If it doesn't work, try something else. And for those things that do work, hammer them as hard as you possibly can. Um, that's a totally like. That's, yeah, that's the hard sort thing of like. Press. That's a Noah Kagan like. I mean, it, it's it's also just a common sense. Yeah. It's okay, also just a common sense thing of like, look, like, you know, keep the wheat and cut out the chaff. Yeah. Right. Just do everything that works and screw everything that doesn't hit your goals. I wonder if, I mean, he very, he just made an iPhone app. Mm-hmm. He didn't do iPad. He didn't do Mac. He didn't do Android. Didn't do, right. I mean, so there's a lot of things that I guess probably didn't sound like stuff that he would want. I mean, I don't know the guy, so, yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, like, look, if I were that person, I would want to understand, I would want to do as much as I could to understand the market demand before I went, before I even created the product in the first place. Right. right? Um, and so whether that means, you know, 
like putting up some kind of shadow landing page and seeing how many people you can get to opt into something. Yeah. Or um, whether it means like, you know, talking to some people who are real influencers in that RSS blogging space and understanding whether their readers would use something like that. Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. Right? So he could have talked to some really big blogs and found out what percentage of their readers actually use RSS. You could probably get that information without talking to them. I, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on right. like RSS statistics. Oh, neither am I. That's why it makes them, such a great example. Because yeah. <laughs> then we yeah. can actually <laughs> say the things that you would have to say when you don't actually know the business yet. Yeah. 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 Um, but I would want to know everything I can to guarantee that it's not going to um, it's not going to fail according to my expectations. Yeah. That, that's a really good point. I mean, if your strategy is press, then right. find out which press you're probably going to get. <laughs> right. I guess probably you'd want to make sure you're going to get it ahead of time. Like, you know, set up that relationship and then you can use that information. You can ask them things like what percentage of your readers tend to click through on your ads <laughs> right? Right. and, you know, start working the numbers that way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if he got if he got written up on like um, Gawker, that's very different than getting written up on mm, RSS yeah. World, right? Or I'm again, I'm just making up like fake names of things. But right, yeah. Um, I was like, is RSS World a real thing? <laughs> it probably is. It probably is. Um, but yeah, getting getting the right press is important too. That's a whole other thing. That's true. Yeah. Um, is that a strategy that a lot of the uh, strategy hack companies pursue? Press? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's maybe definitely a, more of a Maybe in a few shoot. cases. Um, to me, you really need to know exactly, uh, exactly how you're framing the company before you really want to get press around it. Right? Yeah, that's um, why. Yeah, that's hard. And there's a whole product side, too. You want to make sure that your website can handle it. But in a lot of cases, you know, these young startups will get press they'll get a, a huge number of hits on their website yeah, and no active users right they get people that either come to the, you know come to the website maybe sign up yep never come back again yeah i've had that experience with beta list for instance okay yeah i mean if you're on beta list they will send you a surge but yeah so so we had a we had a strategy hack company which is actually folded now um get listed on beta list the day of strategy hack um and and got some press but doesn't actually exist anymore um it's really exciting when all those people flood in oh yeah i'm up. sure that's a huge <laughs> adrenaline rush but i mean look but if you can if you customers. can anticipate getting a bunch of active user or getting a bunch of hits without active users yeah. then having a whole email marketing campaign ready to go for those people to re-engage them get them yep. back to your website back to your software then that's going to be a lot more effective than just trying to get press without really understanding how to re-engage those people to begin with. Yeah. The problem with beta list is it only works if your target market is tech entrepreneurs. Right. I mean, you either, so in order, in order for that to be your target market, you either have to be starting something that's completely mass market and that's just your first group that you're going to bring in, or it has to be actually targeted towards them in some way because right. that's who's there. Right. Or, um, you know, maybe some angel investors like BetaList could be a good place if angel investors are monitoring. Um, That's true. There's but, this NYU startup where, uh, rather than it's kind of like a BetaList, but for, but for real life, where you get you, they, I think it's supposed to, it's meant more for QA, 
So they throw your app or your idea, your product at someone, at a bunch of students. I guess they have a network. Maybe they pay somebody or maybe the you know, students can earn money on the side by playing around with the timing there. Yeah. I'll have to look this up as soon as I get a chance and we'll link that in the show notes. But um, I think it allows for exactly that problem, to solve exactly that problem. Of, you know, Betalist is just too centric for just either you're going to be in the bubble and you're in the echo chamber, rather, echo chamber, not bubble, or... There's a there's a great event that happens pretty much every month here in New York called Test Tube. Mm-hmm. Um, I would check it out on Meetup.com, and I think they have a website now too. Um, but it's entirely for user experience QA. So mm-hmm. if you have a product you're working on, you come and you review other people's products, but then get them to review your gotcha. products too. What? How do you think Product Hunt plays into this? Product Hunt? Yeah. Um, I think Product Hunt, like like I mentioned with Betalist, is a great tool for uh, angel investors and early stage investors to at least hear about up and coming companies, mm-hmm. um, other people in the startup ecosystem. You know, like I would check Product Hunt on a regular basis, not because I necessarily like I'm going to reach out to those companies to get them to strategy hack, but just because it's interesting to go out there and see what people are working on. Which is how I, I mean that's you know that's how Hacker News became such a big thing yeah. to begin with. It's oh, just yeah. like all this content for this very niche community, and it's not that anymore. That's the crazy thing. Like <laughs> it seems like it's really expanded beyond that. Um, I started reading Hacker News in like when I started college, yeah. and since then, I mean, I hardly read it at all now because right. it's almost nothing I'm interested in. I get a weekly <laughs> summary of it now, and I actually don't read it very much anymore. Yeah, now it's in my. So I subscribe to an RSS feed All right. of the Hacker News things that go over 50 votes or something, okay. and it's in my Firehose group. Okay. Like, yeah. you know, publications that publish way too much for me to read, and it's like, yeah. it's like my feed group of last resort. Like after I've read everything <laughs> else I want, and I still like have nothing to do, I'll go into the Firehose and just kind of right. skim through the 900 headlines that are in there since the last time I checked, <laughs> which is yesterday. Uh, nah, I check it probably like twice a week, but yeah, still. Yeah. Probably two hundred things go in there per day. Yeah. Um, but PR and getting featured on different sites is is a really tricky game. Um, it really helps to know people, know writers, or know editors of different sites. Um, which is which is why a company would hire a PR person in the first place because that person has those relationships. You don't have to go out and build them. What do you think about the folks who dismiss PR as being something? If your product is good enough, you don't need it. You don't need a PR team to solicit it. You don't need like the best market, the best product sells itself. Um, I think you see a very few rare examples where that has actually worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just um, a close your eyes and cross your fingers type thing. I mean, yeah. you just hope that your, that's your PR also, is accidentally good. That's usually in a space where there are no competitors either. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that PR is designed to um, position you over and above another competitor, but just to get your name out there, right? right. Um, so an example is... Uh, a company called Signpost. They do small business marketing services. They have a software platform. They've they've grown extraordinarily quickly in the last few years. Um, and to my mind, they're competing directly with Yext. They're competing directly with Single Platform, um, and you know probably fifty other services. Right? Um, if they don't do everything they can to get their name out there in a bunch of different ways, right? Like several different marketing strategies, including press 
then they're just going to get drowned in the noise. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of communicating what's different about yourself, right? I mean, why should people care about you versus the competitors? I mean, we'd like to think that. In a lot of cases, it can just be getting your name out there at the right moment, right? Right. So if I'm a small business and I've heard of Yext and Single Platform before, but when I really need it, Signpost is there. DuckDuckGo did a great job of that. Like with yeah. This, with the, uh, the Don't Track Us campaign and stuff like that. Hmm. I like that. But like there was a big, um, there was a big sort of bubble up about privacy and how Google is right. collecting all this data about you. And then DuckDuckGo, this you know kind of startup search engine, right. had this DontTrackUs.com, yeah. I think. Some domain, Don't Track Us. Yeah. About, don't track me, bro. And it's, it's very <laughs> specific. Like, what is Google doing to track you? And... We're not doing it, and right. it was very, you know, it's topical. And they can't—they yeah. come up with these campaigns. Like I don't know, uh, maybe it's Gabriel Weinberg. I can't remember, but the guy running that company is like—he's hmm. got—he's got such a read on the industry. And when big news stories come up, they like—they have some kind of way that they've cooked up to harness it within twelve hours. Usually, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a whole nother marketing strategy. You might call it newsjacking or something else. Newsjacking, I like that. Um, but like staying, like actually staying relevant and staying top of mind by taking advantage of popular stories that happen to be in the news at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's got to be hard to keep track of them. Strategy Hack tried our hand at that in the spring because there was a big venmo ad that was mm. in the subway <laughs> I remember oh, yeah. um and so we just took a picture of me in the same pose as the guy that was in the ad and put it against the white background and just made like joke posters that looked exactly the same thing as the real posters we actually got a bunch of people to apply to strategy hack um that i mean that appealed directly to the marketers who were like oh this is a fun creative ad right. campaign so um, was it a would you consider that a success yeah absolutely okay. Right. Absolutely, because it because it achieved our result, which was to drive applications. Nice. Yeah. How did you get those out there? Like you put them on the internet, or you actually bought subway ads? No, we didn't buy subway <laughs> ads. I wish we had that budget, but um, I don't know. I have no idea. We we just set up a Tumblr account and put it out on our social channels, which have been pretty good for us. Mm. Um, and emailed it around to a few people, asked other people to tweet about it. So great thing to do in a lot of cases, you know, if you are looking for social engagement is to um, identify those people who are willing to share your content with their networks and send them like a pre-written tweet or pre-written post of some kind. Um, and oh, there's a, there's a really cool free service called Click to Tweet. You can actually create a link where all someone has to do is click on the link in your email or anywhere else, and it'll take them right to a page on Twitter.com where they can post a tweet ah. with your pre-written content already in it. I've written a few of those services. Yep. I mean, not not ones that are reusable, but you know, like when <laughs> on your blog, it like puts oh, the yeah. title into a into a tweet and just yeah. Yeah, yeah. Peter, not hard to build. Peter and I met during the holiday season, of 2013. Yep. Um, and at that point, you were running that exact campaign. I added you on Facebook. Oh, right. I, <laughs> yes. Right. I understand what he's doing here. This is this is, and I never saw any of, any of Strategy Hack stuff, but I just knew of you from Strategy Hack, and therefore I saw that that picture. Right. And but you also blended that in your social, uh, which in in your, in your personal social stuff. Yes. Definitely. Which the people that you know, 
I mean, you're friends with tons of people in the tech sector, so you're inevitably going to blend personal and professional. Sure. And then, so you... I mean, it's not inevitable. Um, it is intentional. You'll see, like, you know, there are some startups we know the first and last name of every single co-founder. There are other startups we have no idea the names of the co-founders, right? And it's it's an intentional choice to either put your name out there and use your personal brand to further the overall brand or to let the startup's brand speak for itself and to stay in the background. So where do you see yourself going? Because, I mean, you're also involved with uh, Startup Grind and you run the New York City chapter for that. Sure. And I'm wondering... Yeah. Do you find are you find that you're maybe a little drawn? Oh yeah, we'll get in the show notes. Are you, are you a little drawn between the two of them? Or are you, are you torn because your personal brand is more, at least because you're doing it for longer, more related to Strategic, and now you're kind of you're the guy who does both awesome things. I'm not at all torn because it all drives toward uh, startup education, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the idea of just getting more information out there about the best possible things you can do to run companies. So with Startup Grind, we are interviewing successful founders of Warby Parker and WordPress and um, all these other startups that all have different unique stories. I think that's an important point is like every single person we've interviewed has a completely different story about how they achieved success with their startup, Mm -hmm. like completely different. Um, you know, some people started when they were 19, some people started when they were 50. Um, but it's all about driving toward, for me right now, it's all about driving things towards strategy hack, right? So, um, for the startup grind events, the fact that I'm hosting it actually boosts the credibility of strategy hack. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's all, it acts as a marketing channel almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't want to just... I mean, as with anything, you don't necessarily want to just like blatantly go say like, use my product, use it now. Um, right. But, but just your yeah. presence there and, you know, for like the you chance said, it lends to just, credibility yeah. and you get to talk to people. It's yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, everything, both the startup grind events and then everything we're doing related to strategy hack is ultimately designed and hopefully drives people toward the strategy hack brand. Right. So uh, we're getting going kind of long. Um, is there anything else you want to get in before? The end of, I mean, we'll, we could talk about where to find you and all that stuff when we're done, done. But is sure. there anything else you want to get in before the end of the show? Um, What's that one question yeah. that you're hoping we'd ask? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> um, Don't even tell us. Just answer it. <laughs> Wait, why is it 42? Well, when I was a small boy, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the biggest thing now is um, Strategy Hack is expanding to Washington, D.C. Hey. Um, yeah, and we're, we're hopefully going to continue expanding outside of New York and really starting to get a lot more people in different cities involved in what we're doing. Um, and that's exciting, um, you know, and any chance to really go out and evangelize and help people understand, um, help startups understand the value of marketing and help marketers understand the value of the startup mentality and um, how to operate within resource constraints and how to think along um, agile lines instead of expecting that the project that you start is not going to conclude for another 12 months. Right. Um, how come DC? It's pretty valuable. 
Um, DC is close. It's a great way for us to test out um, expansion. So um, we've only been doing in events in New York so far and actually going to somewhere that has a, a hugely fast-growing uh, startup community but is also close enough that we can get on a bus and put out any fires if we have to um, is attractive. And then hopefully um, we can build our own in-house knowledge of how to expand to other cities and go from there. So the big thing is we're looking for a DC chapter director right now. You guys should chat with uh, Institute. Yep. Because they're also very active in DC right now. And cool. Yeah, they just came up a lot lately. I know um, General Assembly and WeWork have now expanded aggressively to DC as well. Wow. Um, they have a they have a great co-working space there called 1776. Um <laughs> Had a, a bunch of politicians, obviously they're in DC, come and, and touted as like this great co-working space. Um, and uh, came to the hive too. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a there's a really really interesting marketing firm called iStrategy Labs that's based in DC, and they're just expanding to New York now. We might begin working with them. Um, so how did you get in touch with them? Uh, during Internet Week two years ago, I went to a CMO breakfast um, where they were actually hosting it here in New York um, and met a guy named Peter Corbett, who is one of the founders. Huh. Yeah. Networking strikes again. Networking strikes again. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Um, there's a lot of value. I, Mark Suster actually has a great uh, blog post. I think it's called like 50 Cups of Coffee or something like that. Uh -huh. It's about um, no matter how like heads down you are on product or whatever else, try to meet at least one new person every week um, and try to really keep like expanding your like, expanding your horizons. It's a funny word, but a term, but actually like constantly making sure that you're getting new perspectives going out meeting new types of people meeting new people in your industry very valuable yeah all right uh so where can people find you and strategy hack and sure um i'm on twitter at p crisdale um also strategyhack.org my email is peter at strategyhack.org um i like that you're .org yeah, we're a .org, uh, not a .com. Um, for two reasons. I mean, you know, we're really founded around this um, communal idea of actually just like all boats will rise by what we're doing, hopefully. Um, the other is because some dude in Florida owns strategyhack.com. That douchebag. <laughs> Are you guys considering uh, switching at some point to a B Corporation structure? Um, haven't thought about it. We need to um, solidify a lot of other things before we can really think about it. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll see. Cool. Well, I mean, Peter, this was terrific. I'm glad we finally got you on. Feels yeah. like it was 15 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, we'll have to get you on again. I'd love to. Absolutely. So